Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by the Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia, and dedicated to the proposition articulated during World War II by Walter Lippmann that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman, counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments and a Bulwark contributor and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center. And I'm joined, as always, by my partner in all things strategery, Elliot Cohen, the Robert E. Osgood Professor of Strategy at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies and the Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies here in Washington. Elliot, how are you? I'm doing uh, just fine. Let's see. The biggest news, I just published another piece in The Atlantic about why it's time to stop talking about talking. And then there's a, a riff on baloney realism, but we can talk about that some other time because the more important thing is our, our guest, Bob Lieber. A perfect segue into introducing our guest. Our guest today is Robert Lieber, Professor Emeritus of Government and International Affairs at Georgetown University since 1982, previously taught and was chair of the department at the University of California in Davis. He's a prolific author and editor of distinguished volumes on international affairs and U.S. foreign policy. There are too many for me to enumerate uh, in the podcast, but most recently, a trilogy of uh, books, which I now guess is a quartet, The American Era, followed by Power and Willpower, Retreat and Its Consequences, and now uh, this fall, The Indispensable Nation, published by Yale University Press, and my favorite factoid about Professor Lieber is that he had a, a small extra role in Alfred Hitchcock's classic 1959 suspense thriller, North by Northwest. Bob Lieber, welcome to Shield of the Republic. Thank you, Eric. And it's a pleasure to be uh, in this conversation with Elliot and you. Uh, so thank you for the invitation. Well, let's start with Indispensable Nation. You describe the kind of contested, what I've called in the past, the contested primacy that the U.S. now enjoys. It's no longer the sole superpower the way it was at the end of the Cold War, but it's still essential to what we call the rules-based international order. But there are a lot of people who question whether there even is such a thing as the rule-based international order. So can you level set the field for us by Explain it to our listeners. What is the rule? What do, we, what do we mean when we say the rules-based international order? And how does the U.S. play a role there? Sure. Like a lot of terms in world affairs, it's subject to different meanings. But in, 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 my, uh, in my mind, it has to do with the interaction among countries in the world um, uh, to maintain some sort of civilized, viable um, uh, set of relationships for the conduct of um, uh, diplomacy, uh, economic exchange, cultural exchange, exchange, tourism, traffic on the high seas, air traffic, and everything else, the normal interactions of daily life. Right now, there are three major countries and a number of smaller ones who are revisionist powers. Most importantly, China, uh, a growing superpower in its own right, which really seeks to uh, change that, if you want to call it world order or set of arrangements, to shift it in its own direction, which reflects a desire for tribute states around it, a la the old uh, Chinese empires of, uh, of the distant past, but also its predatory role, not only in economic and trade matters, but in its relationships with other 
countries. Uh, Russia, too, as you see in its invasion of Ukraine and its efforts to uh, enlarge its influence or either indirect or direct control of so many of its neighbors is seeking not only to restore uh, the territories controlled by Stalin's Soviet Union and his successors, but those of Imperial Russia. The U.S. for seven decades was critical in creating and sustaining the kinds of institutions we take for granted. The United Nations, for instance, the IMF, the World Bank, the World Trade Organization, the World Health Organization, and too many others to name. But it's also a mistake uh, by some people who are big on world order to assume that world order has truly constitutional characteristics. The best rejoinder to that is in a, um, a film that came out about 20 years ago, uh, replete with black humor, called Team America World Police, in which there was an incredible scene. It's all done by, by marionettes, in which a, a, a character represented by Hans Blix, who was then a head of the UN agency uh, required to inspect for nuclear weapons in violation of all kinds of international treaties and agreement, agreements, goes to see the dictator of North Korea. And he comes in to see the dictator and he, he wants to inspect the dictator's palace. And the reply is no. And um, uh, so Hans Blix and, and, and the North Korean leader says, uh, in effect, what will you do if we don't do this? He says, well, if, if you don't comply, we will write you an angry letter. So uh, the uh, North Korean beckons Hans Blix to step forward a few steps, pulls a lever, and drops Hans Blix, the marionette that is, into a pool filled with sharks who go about tearing him apart. It's a sad reflection of the fact that international order is not self-sustaining and that without the indispensable U.S. role, there really is no institution or other country that can do what the U.S does. World affairs would still continue without the U.S. by definition, but the, it would be far more of a dog-eat-dog -dog world than it already is with uh, predatory economic behavior, um, terrible uh, reductions in human rights and democracy, uh, reduced prosperity, more likelihood of pandemics, wars, uh, and so forth, or at best, breaking up into regional power blocks of the kind of thing we saw before World War I, making war even more likely. Bob, could I just uh, follow up on that for a moment? You know, you're somebody who's written for a long time about American foreign policy and who knows its history, particularly its, its modern history well. Isn't it the case that there have always been people who have been pushing back at the notion that the United States should play this kind of role in the world. And I, I was wondering if you could give us a, something of a historic perspective on that. Do you, do you think the kinds of people and the, kind, and the kinds of arguments they make have really changed since, you know, the days of the first America firsters uh, back, in, uh, back in the early 40s? Um, wait a minute, Elliot, I want to make sure I know what, what argument we're talking about. You mean my remarks about those who advocate a continuing uh, indispensable or a leadership role for the United States or those who argue against it? 
I'm I'm actually interested in those who are against it because it seems to me, you know, the argument that you make was indeed the dominant argument for quite a few decades, but there's always been pushback against it. There has always been pushback against it. Uh, Woodrow Wilson was uh, elected and uh, re-elected in, in 1916 with the argument he kept us out of war, i.e. World War One. A year later, Wilson summoned, Cong summoned Congress in April 1917 to declare war on, on Imperial Germany. In the 1920s and 30s, a vigorous uh, dogmatic and conspiracy-oriented anti-engagement, uh, pro-isolationist movement emerged with very uh, atavistic elements and intense anti-Semitism as part of it. The myth in the U.S. was that it was the arms merchants who had lured us into war and so on and so forth. In the 1930s, that took the form of uh, the kind of movement that uh, Lindbergh, the great flyer, was in that called for the U.S. to stay out of World War II. And uh, Lindbergh himself was uh, contaminated by his association with Adolf Hitler, who gave him various awards and things. The Congress of the United States had to renew draft legislation. They passed the House of Representatives in the uh, autumn of 19... 40 by one vote, thanks to the role of the Speaker of the House, who sort of put his thumb on the scale, even though most of continental Europe was already occupied by the Nazis and the Japanese were running wild in uh, uh, East Asia. So there have been those pressures all along. And after World War II, there was a strong element in the Republican Party led by Robert Taft, the 1952 Republican presidential nomination was really a, a fight between Taft and Republican isolationists. And Taft had opposed the creation of NATO in 1949 versus Eisenhower and the and Republican internationalists. Eisenhower prevailed. Among the Democrats, the progressive left at various points in its various inca incarnations has often ca uh, called for America to come home and, as I say, in various forums, but there has been a strong isolationist element uh, on the left and right of American politics and among populists. And in the last uh, two decades, a kind of an academic current of that, the so-called academic realists and their policy friends and some think tanks who um, make the argument that America should follow a policy of restraint, that we can pull back even withdraw from our commitments in Europe, Asia, and the Middle East, that those re regions will be just fine without us because local countries there can always get together to balance against a great power threat. And if things really get badly out of hand against our interests, we can always intervene. That makes no sense in the world as it is. And above all, it deprives those actors of agency to assume that if we withdraw and we're nice to the Iranians, uh, Putin and the Chinese, uh, things will change is nonsense. It reflects uh, what Hans Morgenthau once referred to as strategic narcissism. And it deprives those leaders of agency. They have their own ideologies, sense of history, sense of national interest, crude motives and so forth. And this comes back to why it is essential 
that the U.S. remain actively engaged, not necessarily in the same way we did a generation ago, because we don't have the same relative advantage versus our competitors, but there still is no country with the combination of the assets that the U.S. brings to the table geopolitically, economically, and even in terms of our much beleaguered values. Bob, I want to come back to the question of, of so-called realism, uh, not least because you studied with Hans Morgenthau, one of the founders of the Realist School of International Relations. His classic textbook still actually bears reading, in my view, um, today. I've got two of them on the shelf behind me. <laughs> um, you studied with Henry Kissinger at Harvard when you did your PhD. So you, you, you certainly right. know realism. So I, right. I want to come back to that, but I want, if you could, to get you to address two questions that you do talk about in the book. One is, one of the arguments advanced, both on the right and left, by critics of this more forward-leaning role that you have described, is that actually it's the United States that's the big disruptor of the international order. You hear this from you know the Ron and Rand Pauls of the world, uh, as well as the Bernie Sanders of this world. So. Could you address that? And then a second and related question is, you make some very interesting observations about the policies of retrenchment under both the eight years of the Obama term and then the one term of President Trump. And I think, you know, obviously there are enormous differences between Obama and Trump, but uh, there's some continuities there as well. And I, I'd love to hear you talk about that. Right. Um, let's start with your, tell me the first question again. I was writing down the second one. The, the, the first question was whether the United States is as big a disruptor of the world order as anybody else because of our unilateral intervention in Iraq and enhanced, sure. you know, enhanced interrogation policy and any number of a refusal right. to sign on to the ICC, et cetera. Let me begin by saying the U.S. is very imperfect. The U.S. has made American leaders have made major mistakes in foreign policy. But you have to ask the big question, compared to what? The, the fact is that without the United States, the world would be far nastier, far more dangerous, far poorer, and um, far more ugly in many respects. No other country can do what we do. Part of this is explained by a collective action problem. Now, as a thought experiment, imagine on February 24th of this year, if the Biden administration had did what the Obama administration did in 2014, when Russia basically, to be blunt, invaded Crimea, took over Crimea through covert and overt means in combination, hybrid warfare, and sponsored and behind the scenes led an outright invasion of the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine. Uh, at that time, Obama called for the world to stand up, the international community to stand up. He did the same thing when Assad of Syria crossed his red line in, 19, in 2013 about the use of chemical weapons. In both cases, the international community should step up. Well, the international community doesn't step up of its own volition. If you are Denmark or, or uh, uh, the Czech Republic or France or Britain, do you want to be out there all by yourself against a Russia that has nuclear weapons, a proclivity 
to undertake the most brutal actions, both overt and covert, without the backing of the uh, United States with its unique capabilities. No. Imagine then if with the invasion of Ukraine on February 24th, the U.S. had sat back. Not for a moment do I think that the Europeans in the form of the EU or Britain or some of the others who've helped out from regions farther afield would have taken the risk of publicly and conspicuously aiding the Ukrainians. There might have been some covert measures, no doubt, but nothing like what we saw. And Russia today would be have, have succeeded, I think, uh, despite the incredibly courageous actions of the Ukrainians themselves in turning, uh, seizing big chunks of Ukraine physically and turning the rest of it into a rump state that was basically powerless and subject to Russia's diktat, uh, while it continued to put pressure on its uh, periphery. Uh, one might also ask why it is that Ukraine, that uh, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, the Czech Republic, and others were eager to get into NATO. We didn't twist their arms, they twisted ours, precisely because they knew what it meant to live next door to the Russian bear, or for that matter, Germany on its other flank, based on historical experience. Again, the U.S. role is indispensable. In that sense, we are not the disruptor. Was the Iraq war a mistake? I'm talking about the 2003 war, but we can relitigate that, refight it. Things looked a lot different then when decisions were being made on a 60-40, 51-49 set of choices with the future uncertain and based on what was thought to be valid information in the case of Colin Powell, but turned out to be inaccurate. But policymakers have to make those choices amidst uncertainty. You know, I, Bob, I very much agree with that assessment of Iraq. Eric and I have gone back and forth about it. I think he takes a somewhat harder line than, than I do. But I guess um, the, the angle that I'd like to just draw you out a little bit more on that one is, you know, some people have suggested that the experience of Iraq and then later Afghanistan, which culminates in a, you know, extremely disorderly and uh, I would argue disgraceful uh, unilateral fleeing from the the country, really kind of fatally undermined America's self confidence and also its standing in the world, and thus its ability to act as the indispensable mm-hmm. nation. Do you uh, would you agree with that, or to the extent you agree with it, how would you qualify that? I agree with it up to a point. I would qualify it, and let me say there were some analogies between the shocking abandonment of his own red line in Syria by Obama in 2013, a year after uh, Obama had warned if the Syrian regime used poison gas, uh, they would be crossing a red line. And the implication in world affairs, when you say something like that, it means there will be consequences. Instead, he fudged, the line was not crossed. The same thing in a way happened, but much worse uh, with the chaotic August 15th withdrawal uh, from Afghanistan in in just awful circumstances and uh, without even the uh, agreement of America's key military leaders who were almost all opposed to it. In both cases, although these were very different cases, 
in both instances, the rest of the world drew the conclusion that the U.S. was pulling back. And I think what that did was encourage revisionist powers to believe they could become a great deal more uh, less risk averse and more risk acceptant. I think you can look at the actions of Russia in seizing Crimea a year later of the Chinese in beginning to militarize uh, islands and inlets in the uh, East and South China seas and the Iranians and their policies with their proxies and their neighbors were all, I think, um, encouraged to do that on the grounds they thought the U.S. would be less inclined to push back, which was an accurate reading. Same thing that happened perhaps unintentionally on Biden's part. Biden came to office writing before the war in foreign affairs and then speaking immediately, I'm sorry, before his inaugurate, before his election in 2020 and afterward initially about the need and importance of the U.S. resuming a position of global leadership. But the implementation of it has been very iffy. So then in the case of Afghanistan in uh, August, of last year, it again had sent a message throughout not just the Middle East, but elsewhere. Was Putin in the Kremlin saying to himself, look, if the US did this in Afghanistan, and before they, you know, years earlier, Obama did that in, um, in the case of Syria, I think I can push into um, Ukraine. I can push the envelope in ways that might not have been possible before but the U.S. is clearly pulling back, reducing its world role, and of course, uh, encouraged perhaps also by those within the U.S. Uh, who uh, called for en the end of endless wars, uh, the end of the expenditure of blood and treasure and, and the rest of it. Now, again, this is a simplification, but I think the overall, the overall argument has a lot of merit and helps to explain behavior by the countries that are to be blunt, our adversaries. Bob, let me draw you out a, a little more on this because there is a kind of bipartisan uh, element to this as well. Again, this goes back to the Obama-Trump comparison. So Obama, you know, withdraws from Iraq at the end of 2011, only to be forced to go back in both to Iraq and Syria in, in 2014 because of the rise of, of uh, ISIS. Um, the, let, let me interrupt there just because some, sometimes to go from generalizations, go down into the weeds a little bit, helps to illustrate that point um, and why you sometimes need to unpack these things. In the case of Iraq, Obama uh, was unwilling to push hard right. for the U.S. to leave at least a token force of American troops and advisors there in a non-combat but advisory role. Correct. U.S. military leaders had wanted 15 or 10 or even 5,000 troops. The then Iraqi government did not want to agree to a um, status of forces agreement. But ironically, in 2014, when Obama was forced to return, I think the fourth or fifth American president in a row was forced to re-intervene, um, um, uh, he did so without a status of forces agreement. Right, exactly. The point being that the mere presence of even a modest amount of troops, therefore air power and advice and intelligence was a symbol of America having the back of a weak Iraqi representative government. 
That right. was lifted. And the moment we withdrew in December of that year, the then Iraqi president, who we had a, a role in helping to get in office, but was corrupt as they come, immediately purged his own government and created the circumstances that so weakened the country that ISIS could make the running in 2014. Right. Exactly right. I mean, I, the point I wanted to get at, though, was this notion that the United States was overinvested in the Middle East that Obama had was shared by Trump, who also was the one who set in motion. I mean, Biden, of course, was there at the end for the collapse, but the whole process was set in motion by the uh, Doha negotiating process with the Taliban that right. began under Trump and the agreement that was signed was signed under Trump. So could you compare Obama and Trump a little bit on on this dimension? I mean, obviously, they're very different people. I don't mean morally, I, they're not equivalent at all. But th there is, I think, a policy continuity that's important, I think. Yeah. And just to pile on that, you know, what what's the significant, to the extent that um, Eric is right, and I think by and large, he is, although I think I would disagree in that I think we were overinvested in the Middle East, uh, as opposed to the Indo-Pacific, and as it turns out, Europe. But, you know, it, to the extent that you agree with the, you know, this argument that in some ways they are uh, regrettably similar, where, did, where, where does that come from? It's a great question. I have an entire chapter on the book. So I say to your audience, read the book. Yale University Press published in September uh, this year. They, these are totally different people in every respect with very different values, but they both viewed the U.S. as seriously overcommitted. They both wanted to reduce America's engagement in the world. They both, I think, embraced the slogan about ending endless wars. Uh, Obama, though, with a uh, uh, genuflecting to wars of necessity versus wars of choice trying to separate Iraq from uh, Afghanistan. But it's worth remembering that Afghanistan began thanks to the 9-11 attack on the US, a war that for the first time ever was uh, supported by NATO and invoking Article 5 because it was an attack on the United States homeland and uh, endorsed by the United Nations initially. You get then into these prolonged discussions of whether the problem in this case, Afghanistan, was that was the American engagement there misconceived or misconducted. And the uh, uh, we could have spent this entire program and then some on it. And it's, it's hard to summarize that in a, in a nutshell. Would it have been possible? And these are major ifs. After the U.S., in the case of um, uh, Afghanistan, knocked over the Taliban in a remarkable and economical use of American power. And after the initial uh, US invasion uh, knocked off the Saddam and his army in a matter of a few weeks, again, in both cases, contrary to pessimistic expectations, whether we could have changed the nature of our engagement with much more emphasis on handing over to the uh, locals themselves letting them run things with our support and backing and encouragement, rather having U.S. troops and U.S. civilians on the ground in the substantial ways there they were. That's, it's a case to make whether it ever would have worked or the nature of both societies was so dysfunctional that nothing would have worked is a subject that will be debated 
uh, forever, I guess. Uh, but in both cases, first Obama and then Trump wanted the U.S. ultimately to get the hell out. And uh, the, even though by the time, uh, especially Trump came to power, U.S. casualties there were absolutely minimal, just a right. handful. Yeah, I mean, um, and the reputational consequences that you described, Bob, that came with both of those decisions. Elliot. Yeah, so I guess the, the question I'd ask, though, Bob, is, I mean, as you say, Obama and Trump, radically different kinds of people, but they both came to the same conclusion and they both acted on it or very deliberately failed to act, which is a form of action. Does that tell us, was that just a blip? Or does that really signal that in some ways American political leaders are just not going to be willing to play the role in the world that you know you advocate and that I think it's fair to say Eric and I would support? Well, we go through cycles. There's been a lot of historical and diplomatic history writing about American cycles of engagement and withdrawal. You can certainly see it in the 20th century as well as the 19th, in the latter part of it. It's, it's hard to say. Though I think that in Trump's case, that populism and Jacksonianism uh, tend to have uh, a very nationalist, don't tread on me sensibility, but also a, I think a reluctance to um, uh, get engaged if somebody uh, attacks us. In the case of Obama, as well as Trump, I think it was a complete failure to appreciate the logic of collective action. Coming back to that problem, that uh, the U.S. has capabilities that none of our other allies and friends have. And if you want to pull together sufficient backing, alliances, and so forth to create deterrence, I mean, the point of all this and the point of having a military is to deter others from attacking you or your friends. And deterrence requires the capacity for defense and it includes the, capa the capacity to reassure your allies. And I don't think that either president understood that. And both of them overestimated either in Obama's case what the European Union or NATO could do, or U the UN for that matter. And in Trump's case, not really caring that much about what the consequences elsewhere would be. And having a very um, narcissistic sense of America's role in the world, conflating America with himself and being very transactional in his relations with foreign countries. The thing that was, was unfortunate was that he went about alienating most of the allied leaders, attacking them often personally with his quips and observations, uh, deriding them individually, uh, whereas he sought to engage in friendship, people like Kim Jong-il, uh, and uh, Putin and uh, Xi and, um, and so on, uh, which was very un unfortunate, even while he did some things in foreign policy that were useful, beefing up America's uh, defenses somewhat and putting intense pressure on our allies to pay more of their own fair share of shared collective defense costs. Those weren't the only factors, but they mattered. So let me, if I could shift the ground a little bit, you know, Eric, uh, you said, uh, you noted in your introduction that uh, Bob had uh, studied with Hans Morgenthau, with Henry Kissinger, and, and I have to say, you've always struck me as an extremely realistic kind of guy. So so what happened to realism when it's uh, represented by John Mearsheimer? 
it went off the deep end. I mean, Mersham or more, I, I guess there's an interview in the latest issue of The New Yorker uh, with him uh, in which he says the most outrageous things. He's a very bright guy, but he, he has a worldview which uh, reminds me of the um, French thing about uh, it may work in theory, but it doesn't work in practice. In this case, blaming the 2014 invasion by uh, Putin and the seizure of Ukraine on America. That's, to be blunt, crazy. It reflects a lack of willingness to come to grips with the reality. It, su it assumes that, we heard his feelings, that the enlargement of NATO was so provocative and so aggressive by America that it forced Putin to do this. It forced his hand. It ignores the agency of the Ukrainians who are desperate to lean to the West to engage with the European Union. In fact, it was the EU thing that was the provocation that led Putin in 2014 to go into uh, Ukraine, not the US. And it also misses a point that Bill Walforth and a Russian co-author made in an article a year or so ago, I, I cite it in the book, where they, in their interviews in, in Russia, and looking at other data about messages and so on, find that it wasn't so much the enlargement of NATO, but the existence of NATO, which is a source of underlying uh, resentments. Moreover, you have a whiff of Weimar Russia about all this. The, the fear was after the end of the Cold War, as Russia fell, fell apart and fell into chaos for a decade, economically, politically, militarily, and so forth, before under Putin, who was appointed in effect by Yeltsin, began to reconsolidate Russian power with a simmering source of resentment against the West. In a sense, the Nazis played to that theme, including with the myth of the stab in the back. In this case, it's the myth of the West oppressing them. And uh, Putin has played that theme to uh, his own public, and so forth. But for Mersheim, who were engaged as, it's just fatuous. It's well, somebody the idea, you... Bob, that NATO represented a threat to Russia, in a military threat to Russia in 2014 at the time of the seizure of Crimea, is belied by the fact that there was not a single U.S. tank in Europe at that point in time. And that, in fact, you know, NATO defenses were, you know, notoriously down. Defense spending among the allies was down. The alliance for most of the previous decade had been, you know, pretty much involved in Afghanistan rather than uh, contemplating, you know, Russian uh, military action in Europe. So, I mean, it, it's a completely crazy, crazy notion, honestly. So, but, but, but let me press you both on that then a little bit. So, I mean, realism used to have a good name and yet somehow it's, uh, the guy who is most associated with uh, that view of the world is, and I, I think you know, you just scratched the surface of it. Is saying things that are nutty, that are not true, uh, that are really pernicious in a number of ways. So what happened? Yeah. To be absolutely blunt, I also think, and this is a lot more controversial, but his uh, the work he and Steve Walt did first on the Israeli lobby was, I think bluntly anti-Semitic. You, uh, Elliot, wrote a piece in the uh, op-ed page of the Washington Post 
that included that in the title. Yes, it's anti-Semitic. The, uh, there's a 3D test about Israel. If you, um, the 3Ds are, when you know that criticism of Israel, which is perfectly legitimate, it's anti-Semitism. When it um, is, has double standards, delegitimizes and demonizes. And, you know, you have to uh, apply those standards in the work of Walt and Mearsheimer, besides being factually incorrect, uh, is relevant here. I'll give you one more example, because it reflects on Mearsheimer's judgment. And I must say, I'm looking at some old things in my study. I wrote a review of Mearsheimer's big book on, um, on uh, uh, international affairs about 20 years ago. And I called it a masterpiece, but he wasn't, he, this is long before I got into this other stuff. And Steve Walt was in a debate with uh, Dennis Ross and others at Cooper Union in New York sometime after the original lobby piece came out. And Walt made, was either Walt or Mearsheimer, but I'm pretty sure it was Walt, made the statement in the debate, and I have this from Dennis Ross, that the U.S. government had never gone against the Israeli lobby on matters involving Israeli foreign policy. And uh, Ross re replied, that's wrong. The Saudi AWACS decision, just for one example, not to mention Eisenhower in Israel in the 50s and Suez and all kinds of other things. And so Dennis was pointing to actual facts, including some while he was in government. Walt's reply was, again, I, I don't remember now if Dennis said Walter Mershon, but the reply was, quote, I disagree. Well, these were factual matters. They've been caught out in a statement that was completely false, and yet the, real, the comment was, I disagree. That reflects something about a mindset. There were also the housing guarantees in the, uh, in the Bush 41 administration in which Dennis uh, actually served and was involved. So, you know, I, you, Bob, I think represent, and we're unfortunately running out of time. We've got really about five minutes left, but you represent having studied with Morgenthau, Kissinger, Stanley Hoffman, other sort of giants of the field, you represent really a throwback to an older tradition. And I know this is an issue that Elliot wanted to get into. So I'll ask the question and Elliot can, you know, uh, expand on it if he chooses to do so. But how, how does someone with your views and with your methodological approach, which is a really very old fashioned approach to the study of international relations that's grounded in history, not in formal modeling or um, quadratic equations uh, or large end studies and the, uh, the analysis of the statistical correlations uh, derived from those kinds of studies. How does someone like you survive in the academy? Elliot, do you want to add? Well, no, I, 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 you, you put it very well, Eric. I guess I would only add to that since I'm, you know, I'm very much of the same approach and the same mindset. Okay, we've we, we've done okay, but what of the future? What of you know the next generations of academics? Because I, I mean, I'll tell you, I'll be very frank that one of the things that I'm concerned about is I do think academics have a contribution to make to the discussion of foreign policy, uh, and sort of the shaping of some of the underlying arguments. And I, I one of the things I worry about is not just that. A lot of these other approaches are wrong. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. But for the most part, they're just not particularly relevant to the making of foreign policy. So if you could answer that, but also talk a little bit about uh, what the future is in the academic world, I'd, I'd appreciate it. That's worth an entire separate program. 
I'd be delighted to talk about it, and I'll try to do it concisely in just a couple of minutes. Uh, I think what's happened is you have what Steve Walt um, once referred to as the uh, the search, the the sort of the impulse for the jugular, the, the impulse for the capillary. That is to say, many of the academic disciplines, but it's especially true of political science and international relations, are doing more and more intense studies of less and less. Much of the same has happened in history, and it eviscerates them. I think the more interest, I guess one, uh, um, I came to Georgetown in 82, and the, this, there's a, a, a creative synthesis between the government department and the School of Foreign Service, and with more and more joint appointments in ways I think that were very constructive, because policy schools have tended to be much too oriented toward uh, hyperfactualism in the day's headlines. And departments of government and political science often off the deep end into the types of things Eric referred to quite accurately. So the, the existence of the two has tended to make the academics more relevant to the policy, more attentive to the policy consequences and relationship. And the policy people are writing more practical things uh, asking themselves, what are the, what's the broader long-term meaning or even theoretical influence of that? So it helps that I was at Georgetown. That's one. Number two, even there, the current is shifting. I don't want to go, I mean, I've been involved over the years in a couple of uh, tenure cases where I've intervened in what I felt were decisions that were not made on academic quality. I think it's also uh, the case that people like Kissinger, Jean Kirkpatrick, Madeleine Albright, Joe Nye, and others would have great difficulty replicating their careers in today's academy. But uh, it's also the case that political correct correctness and wokeness is, is pivotal. So many universities are now imposing the requirement, even for the hiring of physicists, that they begin their application from outside. So there's a professorship advertised with a page statement about what they will do to facilitate or have done or, or are doing equity, inclusion, and diversity in their teaching. Well, that's great if you want somebody who's a brain surgeon or a physicist, but it doesn't speak to their, their quality and their thinking. So that's very problematic. I retired two years ago, uh, but one advantage I have was that I was already department chair in California. And I think for me and for others which, who are still present here and there, uh, but no longer so significant in their own departments and programs, it's necessary to have a foot in both camps, both to have passed the strictly academic rigor tests in terms of how academies are supposed to measure things like quality publication, uh, journal publications, teaching, research, colleagueship, and so forth, as well as engagement in these, these broader issues. I mean, I, I had the advantage of uh, being part of the post immediate post-World War II generation in terms of my upbringing and having mentors at the University of Wisconsin, at Chicago for a year, and then Harvard, who often bridge those, those, those uh, differences. And that's much less common now than it was then. So that's a major factor, too. I, I wish I could disagree with you, but I can't.
Our guest today has been Professor Robert Lieber of Georgetown University. He's the author of Indispensable Nation and several other works already mentioned in this podcast. You will be able to find links uh, to the books at Amazon uh, that we've mentioned, uh, along with Elliot's article uh, about why it's important to stop talking about talking in the Atlantic, and a similar piece by your humble and obedient servant and my colleague David Kramer that appeared in American Purpose called Don't Go Wobbly on Ukraine. So uh, with that, uh, we conclude another episode of Shield of the Republic. I'm sure we'll try and have Bob Lieber back to uh, deal with other issues in the future because we've got plenty of them on our plate. Um, please keep sending uh, us your emails at shieldoftherepublic at uh, gmail.com. We do read them. We've got some homework assignments from some of our listeners, which we'll endeavor to uh, carry out. Uh, and please uh, go on to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from and leave us a review and like us. <laughs>